Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Space Shuttle Challenger's five astronauts are sleeping now after a virtually flawless launch and first day. This is the seventh shuttle mission, and with no hitches, it might have been considered routine. But as the Challenger climbed today, it carried an American woman astronaut, Sally Ride, into space and into history. The story of the first American men to go to space has been well told. Those brave, cocky test pilots were selected for Project Mercury in 1959 because they had the right stuff, as the author Tom Wolfe famously put it. But it wasn't until 1978 that NASA opened the door for women to join the U.S. astronaut program. The civil rights movement happened. The feminism movement happened. That's when NASA started getting questions about, okay, why is this not a priority? And so it really was something they just could not ignore anymore. That's Bloomberg space reporter Lauren Grush. In a new book called The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts, she recounts the very different path these pioneers took to reach NASA and the challenges they had to overcome along the way. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, the women who shattered the highest glass ceiling. Lauren, this is a really big book, 430 plus pages. How long have you been at it? Uh, It has been a three-year project, but to be fair, if you've ever edited a piece of mine, you'll know that I always tend to write long, so I... Actually, was concerned I would not meet the word count, but then, of course, I exceeded it and had to cut (laughs) a lot out of it. But, hey, when you're writing a biography of six incredible women, there's not enough pages for all of the interesting things that they've done. So why don't you tell us about the six? Sure. So I think everybody has some kind of idea of who Sally Ride is. Obviously, she's the first American woman to go to space. I I bet some people don't even know she was actually the second woman ever to go to space. But yes, Sally Ride's name kind of resonates for a lot of people. But what I think a lot of the public doesn't know is that she was one of a group of six women who could have all been the first American woman to go to space. They were all extremely qualified, but one of them had to go first. And so with the six, I really wanted to shine light on the other five women's stories and also the accomplishments that they made because Obviously, they did amazing things as well. They just had different spots in the order. I mean, these six women, they're just incredible. So just to to name them, 
Obviously, we know Sally Ride. She's a former tennis player and astrophysicist. Judy Resnick, she's an electrical engineer and the second American woman to fly to space. There's Kathy Sullivan, an oceanographer and geologist, also the first American woman to perform a spacewalk. After her came Anna Fisher. She's an emergency room doctor, and she became the first mother to fly to space. After her was Ray Seddon, also a surgeon and a doctor, and followed up by Shannon Lucid, who was a chemist. What's so interesting about this is that all of them started the same year in the same class of astronauts, right? Absolutely. They were selected among a group of 8,000 applicants in 1978. So what the selection committee did was they actually narrowed that down to over 200 finalists. And these women were among those finalists. And they had to go through what I think is a very extreme selection process. They had to come down to Houston, Texas, where the NASA Johnson Space Center is, and go through a week of physical exams, medical exams. They had to undergo a psych evaluation. The biggest thing they had to undergo and was really kind of what decided their fate was a an hour and a half long interview with the selection committee. And I can only imagine that was probably the most intimidating interview of one's life. But yes, it was simply just to gauge a little bit more about who they were. They talked about what they had done in high school and what led them to the now. And through that process, the selection committee members tried to understand if this really was the job for them and, and if they could hack it as an astronaut. Even the idea that they were up for selection was pretty historic because women just weren't allowed in before 1978. Right. So the requirements prior to when these women joined were very limiting for folks. Back when NASA was first formed, they were gathering people for the Mercury 7. It was very strict. You had to be a test pilot. And back then, the only people who could be test pilots were men because women were banned from flying jets for the military. And so it was pretty much guaranteed that women could not join. And at the same time, they also wanted people who are engineers and scientists with advanced degrees. So it was probably the most stringent requirements you could possibly have back then. Then over time, you know, as NASA tried to fix its mistakes and be more inclusive, they also created a new role, which was called the mission specialist. So while they still prioritize pilots and people with jet experience who could fly the shuttle, they created this new role, which was for astronauts who had backgrounds in engineering, STEM. And so all they needed to be selected was a degree in one of those fields. Obviously, an advanced degree was preferred and they had to be a certain height and they had to pass a basic physical exam, which also I believe had relaxed requirements. So it was the most inclusive selection process that NASA had ever done. And at the same time, they also very much wanted to spread the word to women and people of color at the time. They, they made that a priority. And so that allowed for a much more diverse pool of applicants to apply, leading to the six joining. And also during their class, they were the first women, but it also included the first three Black astronauts to join the program and also the first Asian-American astronaut. Why 1978? What was the thing that made NASA realize they needed to go past the kind of fighter jock selection process? Well, let's not forget that they still got flack for 
simply picking men back in the 60s. There was a group of women who underwent a series of tests that the Mercury 7, the first seven astronauts that NASA picked, underwent. The 13 women passed those tests. And they desperately wanted to keep training to potentially go to space one day, but they were blocked from pursuing that dream further. And so there was a congressional hearing in which they desperately tried to get NASA to consider them and to let them keep training. But it just wasn't a priority for NASA at the time, simply because we were in a space race with the Soviet Union. So I think the idea was that anything that detracted from winning that race was seen as some kind of detriment and that wasn't a priority. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. In the meantime, the Soviet Union did end up sending the first woman into space, but NASA downplayed that. That was just not a, a race that the U.S. was keen on winning at the time. Then as the years progressed, the world changed. The civil rights movement happened. The feminism movement happened. And that's when NASA started getting questions about, okay, why is this not a priority? And there's some internal work done in the book showing just how awful NASA's diversity efforts were. And so it really was something they just could not ignore anymore. And the selection committee in the 1970s really made that a priority. And ever since this class of astronauts was selected, every subsequent astronaut class has been closer to parity and equality than we had back in the early days of the program. You said that one of the requirements was each of these women astronauts had to have a degree in one of the STEM fields. If you look at the resumes of these astronauts, they're pretty incredible. Most of them have PhDs. Two of them were medical doctors. These were people who had brilliant careers already before they decided to go into space. Absolutely. But in reality, they faced a lot of struggles even before they came to NASA because some of them really had to fight to be taken seriously in order to pursue their academic ambitions. I mean, some of the women were younger when they were chosen, but Shannon Lucid was the oldest one of the bunch. And her story I find extremely compelling because she grew up just slightly a few years before many of the women in the book. And the, the amount of sexism and vitriol that she faced just because she wanted to work. She had so many men telling her that, oh, she'd never get a job or that she couldn't be paid the same as her male colleagues. You know, she just was constantly trying to just be taken seriously. And it was just such a struggle for her. So I find those early days really compelling just to learn what brought them to the types of careers that they wanted. And then also learning about why they each wanted to be an astronaut, I think was fascinating. One thing I, I keep saying is the six is a great example of there's no one true path to space. They all had such diverse backgrounds and diverse interests. And also, I think a lot of people assume that anyone who wants to be an astronaut, it was just this lifelong dream from the start. But for half of them, it really wasn't anything that they considered. A big part of that was because they just didn't think it was possible for them. So it was only when the astronaut selection process was opened up to a much more diverse class of people 
that they thought, oh, this is something I could do. I think I could be really good at it. And I think that's a great lesson when you make opportunities available for people, they start to realize that they can do these things that they didn't think they could do before. And you find much more interesting and unique people than you would have found. After the break, getting into the space program was just the first challenge these astronauts had to face. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Lauren, getting selected for the space program was obviously a big milestone. But then these women astronauts went into a culture that was very male. And you write that they faced all kinds of challenges once they got in the door. First and foremost, the challenges revolved around training. So for Kathy Sullivan, who was an oceanographer and geologist, you know, she would probably breeze through the sections about oceanography and geology because, you know, a lot of the satellites they deployed were actually looking back at Earth. Same for Sally Ride. She was an astrophysicist. And when they did astrophysics lessons, I'm sure she was old hat for her. They had to stay current on NASA's fleet of T-38 jets, described to me as the hardest jet to fly. But they were backseaters, so they didn't actually fly the planes themselves. But when talking to some of their former colleagues, it was admitted to me that some of them let them take off and land, which was a no-no back then. But I would say probably one of the biggest stressors that the women had to deal with was, unfortunately, our press ancestors. So back in the day, the media was not so enlightened in how they covered the first six women. And that was reflected in some of the terrible questions that they asked. What happens when you meet a man who's not in the space program and doesn't know who you are and you say, I'm an astronaut? Does he say, yeah, you're too cute to be an astronaut? Come on, little lady, you can't be an astronaut. I just tell him I'm an engineer. <laughs> you don't tell him you're an astronaut? Not unless he asks. You really, you mean when you, when you meet people for the first time? What about the whole business about social relationships? Does it make it, are some men threatened by the fact that you're an astronaut? Uh, I don't know. If they are, they're probably not my friends. That was astronaut Judy Resnick being interviewed in 1981. When the women were first announced to the world, one member of the press asked, 
if Shannon's three children were considered when they selected her. The women had to undergo water survival training in order to fly in the T-38 jets. So basically they had to show that if they bailed out of the jet, they could survive landing in water under parachutes. That was one of their first big training sessions. And as they were training, the press kind of just mobbed them in the water. There were boats and rafts of press trying to take pictures of them as they were undergoing this very sensitive training exercise, one that they really needed to be focused on. And the press would yell things at them. I think there's one instance of somebody yelling, you know, give us a smile and maybe Ray or Sally shot back, no. (laughs) And somebody also yelled back, hey, miss. And Ray said, it's doctor, you know, a great exchanges like that. But I think one of the biggest examples of how a lot of growing up the press still had to do was when Sally Ride was first picked for her flight. Her press conferences that she did with the media are just so cringy to listen back to. And there's some great quotes from there. I think the biggest one that's probably the most infamous is before she launched on her flight, someone from Time asked her if she cried or wept when something went wrong in the simulator. And she handled it the best she could. She just laughed and she was just, you know, why doesn't anyone ask Rick, her colleague, one of those questions? Here's Sally Ride speaking to Gloria Steinem in a 1983 interview on ABC. Really, the only bad moments in our training involved the press. The press was an added pressure on the flight for me. And whereas NASA appeared to be very enlightened about flying women astronauts, the press didn't appear to be. The things that they were concerned with were not the same things that I was concerned with. They for were instance, the bathroom facilities. Bathroom facilities. How much they, did you get asked that? Just about every interview I got asked that. Everybody wanted to know about what kind of makeup I was taking up. They didn't care about how well prepared I was to operate the arm or deploy communication satellites. Lauren, that's sort of the outside world looking in and seeing these women as a curiosity. What about inside the program itself? When the women came in, they did really try their best to be inclusive for them. They had to make space for women as they came in. But obviously, you know, not everyone was on board with this. You know, there were some astronauts who were already with NASA at the time who were on record as saying, you know, I kind of considered this job to be a man's job. Even some of the astronauts that came in with them were a little skeptical. A lot of the military folks, they just weren't used to working with women at a professional capacity. So that took a little getting used to, and they obviously had some biases when they came in. Some have admitted to that. But as they worked more with them and saw just how hard they trained and how hard they were working, they reformed their attitudes and realized that this job was just as female as it was male. And, you know, they also came into resistance with other women. So some of the astronauts or the men's wives were not so keen on the women working with their husbands. So as I mentioned, the women had to stay current with their T-38 training. And that meant spending a lot of time in the backseat with one of their male co-workers. And some of the wives of those astronauts didn't want them flying with the women in their backseat. And there was also just some of the men thought that maybe working closely with the women would be seen as improper. And that had to quickly be abandoned because they had so much work that they had to do together. There were definitely some hiccups along the way, but 
a lot of the women have expressed to me that they were treated very fairly and they were very happy with the way they were treated. But once you got into the program, wasn't there a little bit of resentment or a little bit of male chauvinism that was demonstrated to you? There's a very male kind of fighter pilot world that you were entering. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I think everybody leaned over backwards to make sure that we were treated as equals. I think another thing that they also did not want was to be singled out in any way. So they very much expressed that they didn't want to be the girl astronauts. They wanted to be one of the guys. So they were very keen on not making big displays of their gender once they arrived at NASA. I mean, there's a great moment where somebody tried to hold the door open for Sally Ride and she just pushed him right through, <laughs> which is very in tune with her personality from what I've learned of her. Anytime someone could refer to them as a lady astronaut, they shot that down very quickly. And, and it was very much in their interest to be considered just one of the guys. Learn after all this training, it came time to fly. And your book opens with this just beautiful, serene moment. Can you describe what happened? It involves Anna Fisher. I open the book with the night before Sally Ride takes her first trip to space. It's obviously a huge moment. And one thing that I learned, Anna Fisher was the lead Cape Crusader for Sally's flight. So Cape Crusader is a, a fun little term to refer to the support astronauts Many of the astronauts would work the missions. They'd go down to Cape Canaveral in Florida, and they were responsible for the switch checklist. So they would make sure all of the switches in the cockpit or the cabin were set to where they needed to be prior to flight. And at the time, Anna Fisher was very pregnant with her first daughter. And so she had one of those shifts where she had to stay in the cockpit and watch the switches before Sally came in. And I just thought it was an amazing moment because here she is, a, a pregnant woman. I think she was about eight months pregnant at the time. And just that sight of a pregnant woman watching the cockpit, waiting for the first American woman to fly to space. I thought that was a, a really poetic scene and a great way to open the book. And then you have just the absolute mayhem when Sally Ride took her place in that cockpit. Yeah, absolutely. I think luckily for Sally, she was kind of unaware at the time of just the entire media mob that was down down the road. It wasn't just the media. I mean, I think there were about 500,000 people who'd come to Florida that day to witness Sally fly. And you describe what it was like actually for her in the cockpit. Yeah, I think for her, it was finally dawning on her that this was actually going to happen. And she has this great quote that she later said that once the engines ignited and they started flying, she was overcome with this realization that her fate was not her own, that whatever was going to happen to her was going to happen to her in that moment. And she just kind of had to surrender to the engineering and, you know, hope for the best. The thing that I'll remember most about that flight is that... Uh... It was fun, and in fact, I'm sure it's the most fun I'll ever have in my life. When we come back, the post-NASA years. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lauren, once that glass ceiling was broken once and for all, then women became a regular part of space shuttle and other missions after that. What happened to the six? They each went on to fly. I think the order, I mentioned them earlier, that's the order in which they flew. After Sally, uh, Judy Resnick flew. She was the second American woman in space. And so you can only imagine what was the question that she was constantly asked. Was she upset that she wasn't the first? And she handled that very gracefully. And she also admitted to a colleague that after watching Sally and the odyssey that she went through, you know, Sally dealt with press before her flight. It was after she came back that the kind of the, the floodgates just opened and the amount of requests for her was just staggering and overwhelming. So Judy expressed that when she saw that level of attention that she was actually quite content with going second. Tragically for Judy, though, she did fly to space once. And then on her second flight, it was the infamous Challenger accident, and she sadly lost her life. There appears to have been a very serious accident involving the space shuttle Challenger. The launch took place just a few minutes ago, a few moments ago from Cape Canaveral. It had been delayed four times. It appeared to be a good launch at the point of departure from the pad at Cape Canaveral. There had been, as we said, previous delays of four different attempts. This was the fourth one. It had been delayed a couple of hours by ice, by a faulty gauge. Then it appeared everything was good for a launch. But shortly after the launch, there was an explosion. After Judy, Kathy Sullivan flew, and she actually flew with Sally on her flight. So that was Sally's second flight. And that trip was also incredible because she became the first American woman to perform a spacewalk. 
And then Kathy also went on to have an amazing career. She was part of the space shuttle crew that deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. And even beyond that, Kathy is just an avid explorer that's part of her history, which I detail in the book. And even recently, she made history. In 2020, she dove into Challenger's Deep in a tiny submersible. Remember the name Kathy Sullivan, folks. She made history as the first U.S. woman astronaut to walk in space. And now another historic journey puts her in a league of her own. She recently became the first woman to reach Challenger Deep, the deepest known point in the Western Pacific Ocean. Following her was Anna Fisher. And I mentioned that she was pregnant when she sat in the cockpit for Sally's flight. Well, she gave birth to her daughter, Kristen. And so when she flew, she was actually assigned to her flight just before she gave birth. And when she flew, she became the first mother to fly to space. Also, Kristen Fisher is a friend and peer. She's now a space reporter herself at CNN, <laughs> which I think is very apt. After Anna flew, Ray Seddon came next. She was worried her flight was going to be a bit boring, but she experienced a bunch of delays with her mission that made her really frustrated. And it looked as if they were just going to deploy a couple satellites and call it a day. Obviously, astronauts are very eager to fly no matter what. It is their aim in life to go to space. But there are some space flights that are more fun than others. Obviously, if you do a spacewalk, that's more exciting. If you go on a higher inclination around the Earth. So for Ray, she was worried it was just going to be a couple satellite deployments. But then one of the satellites doesn't deploy as planned. And so they have to do this quick kind of regrouping. And I refer to it as a heist because the way they had to kind of fix the satellite. Following her is Shannon Lucid. And it's Ironic that Shannon was last because she was probably the one that was most keen to go to space out of all of them. You know, she had a lifelong ambition to be an astronaut. Well, I'm just really proud to be an American, and I'm just really proud to be part of this cooperative uh, program that we have going with the Russians. It was just a great mission, and I just had a great time. And then all of them went on to have amazing careers. Some of them left the program fairly early. After the Challenger accident, Sally Ride left fairly soon after that, and she dedicated her life to academia. Probably her biggest claim to fame post-NASA is creating Sally Ride Science, a nonprofit that was geared towards inspiring young children, notably young girls, to get into STEM. And also Sally's story doesn't end there. She wound up falling in love with another woman named Tam O'Shaughnessy, who uh, was one of her childhood friends and also a tennis player who they played together. Tragically, Sally did die in 2012 from cancer. But when she died, her partner came out and proclaimed that she was her partner and had been her partner for many decades at that point. And that made Sally the first known LGBTQ astronaut. And Tam told me that, you know, her coming out and revealing that she's received, you know, a ton of letters and notes from people saying that her doing that made them comfortable coming out as well. And so she's, you know, very grateful for that. I, I feel like, honestly, I could write six more books about all of these women. There's so much information about them that I could not include in the 400 pages that I did. So there's plenty of information and I encourage everyone to read as much as they can about these women because they are just fantastic. Lauren, always great talking to you. Congrats on the book. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zenob Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. With additional production support from Jill Namazzi. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.